Good day and welcome to Overdrive where we experiment with ideas and activities to do with cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have new stories including the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries now gives a more detailed report on electrification sales. Daylight running lights really do help. When might more information be too much? Toyota hydrogen race car catches fire and the new Kia EV9, as described with the use of a PR thesaurus. In our features, we talk to the manager of Collecting Cars in Australia about their online auction of some classic, ionic and sporting vehicles, and we reminisce about the ones we love. And our colleague, Evan Jones, helps discuss last weekend's supercar round in Newcastle, the changing nature of the crowd and the role of volunteers. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. This program was originally broadcast on the 11th of March 2023, and we begin with the news. The Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries has released a new publicly available report titled Zero and Low Emission Vehicle Sales. The report, which will be released quarterly, will provide a review of battery electric, hybrid, plug-in hybrid and hydrogen fuel cell vehicle sales over the previous 12 months. For the year 2022, hybrid vehicles represented 8% of the market, electric vehicles 4.3% and plug-in hybrids 1%. Electric vehicle sales are dominated by Tesla's Model 3 and Model Y vehicles, with combined sales of over 19,500 vehicles. The next most popular brand is Hyundai, with nearly 2,500 vehicles. This means that Tesla outsold its next best competitor by 8 to 1. The other brands to make the top 10 in decreasing sales order are the Chinese BYD brand, Polestar, Volvo Car, BMW, Mercedes, MG, Kia and Mini. In hybrid sales, Toyota is even more dominant with over 72,800 vehicles sold in 2022 and second place Lexus adding nearly 3,000 more. The next best seller of hybrids is Great Wall Motors but the two Toyota brands outsell the Chinese brand by 39 to 1. Plug-in hybrid sales are more evenly spread, but much lower in absolute numbers, with MG having the highest sales, followed by Mitsubishi, Volvo, BMW and Mercedes. As if to emphasise the fast pace of potential sales of EVs, just prior to the report being released, MG Australia showed new models at the recent fully charged show in Sydney. Their ZSEV long range will be available for purchase later this month, priced at $56,000 plus on-road costs, while their MG4 will be officially launched onto the market in the second quarter. The benefits of well-researched road safety measures are not always intuitively obvious. Daylight running lights on the front of vehicles are, as the name suggests, always switched on even during the day. It might be thought that a car is already visible enough in the daylight without the need for artificial lighting but there has been considerable overseas research to indicate that they do have a positive effect. Now, research published by the Monash University Accident Research Centre, MUARC, has identified similar benefits on Australian roads in recent times. 
The study found that daylight running lights can reduce non-nighttime multi-vehicle crash involvement by 8.8%. This feature has been mandatory in Europe for all new cars and small delivery vans since 2011 and for trucks and buses since 2012. An examination of New South Wales data indicated that, as at 2020, at least half of the existing vehicle fleet does not have daylight running lights fitted. BMW has announced that it is developing a completely new technology platform for its Neuer Klasse models, even though they will not make it into production vehicles until 2025. The name, which means new class in German, refers back to the company's pioneering models of the 1960s. One of the most distinctive features that BMW has highlighted is a head-up display that allows visible presentations across the entire width of the windscreen for the driver and passengers. Overdrive is impressed with some modern head-up displays that are spread out enough not to present data in a cluttered manner, but we are not clear on what information a passenger might want from this sort of technology. The company presented its revolutionary BMW iVision D vehicle at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas earlier this year. First, the bad news. Toyota's Concept GR Corolla H2 hydrogen-powered race car, which was scheduled to participate in the Takeyu series in Japan in March, will not be racing at that event. During a private test run at the Fuji International Speedway, a vehicle fire occurred due to a hydrogen leak from a gaseous hydrogen pipe in the engine compartment. The cause was a loosening of a piping joint from vehicle vibration, resulting in a hydrogen leak. As the piping joint is located near the engine, the leaked hydrogen ignited when heated. The better though not perfect news is that the hydrogen task sensor failsafe functioned properly so that the hydrogen supply was shut off, avoiding a significant spread of the fire. As a result, the cabin was protected and the safety measures for the occupants were confirmed. And finally, the Kia Corporation has revealed images of the exterior and interior design of their EV9, its first three-row all-electric large SUV. Kia says it uses their Opposites United design principles, which they say, quote, harnesses the creative tension generated by the divergent values of nature and modernity to deliver a harmonious whole. That's whole with a W. The exterior is relatively modern, especially without the need for a grille. But the big design feature, in our opinion, is the interior where the second row of seats can swivel 180 degrees and end up facing the third row of seats so that the passengers can interact. The Kia EV9 will make its global premiere in late March when more details will be available. And that has been the news. A few weeks ago, we spoke about the general price of second-hand cars, how it has been affected by COVID and supply constraints, and we mentioned a few popular mass-produced models. But what about the very special models, the rare, the elegant, the elite examples of motoring excellence? Now, there are a number of well-established auction houses, but a relative newcomer on the block here and in some other countries, is collecting cars. What does the market for classic, iconic and sporting vehicles tell us about the people in this segment and about our general culture 
and the desire to stand out from the crowd. Richard Fowler is head of Collecting Cars Australia. G'day, Rich. G'day, David. How are you? Very well, thank you. What countries are Collecting Cars in? Oh, well, we're a global business. We're, uh, we're in the UK. Head office is in London, and it was started out of the UK four years ago by Ed Lovett, and um, also our ambassador is Chris Harris, who you may know as the, the current host of Top Gear. He's also involved in the biz. And then we've got offices. We were the second uh, region to launch, so we're here in Sydney and Melbourne, and we've also got offices in Sweden, the Netherlands, Germany, uh, the United Arab Emirates, and some offices in the States. So we're, we're tr truly global. You are only online. Is there a way you can see the cars in the flesh? Yes, we are only online, and I think that's what we've done that's, that's, that's disruptive. Um, we find that 99% of our sellers buy the cars sight unseen, and that's why we're online only, which means you can buy them you know, around Australia or around the world. And with our sort of photo essay style and the depth of our descriptions, plus all our cars are curated. So we're only looking for you know, classic sporting and collectible cars, and within those locally delivered ones, you know, ones with low kilometres, good cars. That gives people enough confidence to, to bid and buy um, without needing to see them. Can I see them if I wanted to? Can I or get my representative perhaps to say, hey, there's a great car going in Australia. I know a boat there. Can you go in and have a look? Oh, yes, absolutely. You can still um, see them. And obviously on some port, um, special cars, people do want to touch and feel them. So during the auction period, you just ring us up and we'd, uh, we'd coordinate a, a viewing. But, but generally, there's enough information there for people to, to confidently bid. Why Australia? Is, is it a different market or just an expansion of the typical market? I think the interesting thing about Australia is, well, it's probably two things. Obviously, we've got a, a really enthusiastic motoring scene and motoring population in general. And there's a lot of great cars and great collectors here. But as Aussies, we generally you know, love our cars. It's part of our heritage and history. And also, I guess, from a business point of view, Australians are... You know, they're used to auctions. We understand auctions from our property market, so that made it a good fit. And I think we felt the market was right for disruption. There's nothing else uh, like us in terms of a classic collectible and, and sporting car curated site that happens via auction. We've, we've only got traditional classifieds or traditional auction houses. So I think that's why Australia was um, uh, an open business opportunity. Did it work? Yes, well, we're two years in just in Oz and uh, we've just ticked over 50 million in, in sales. Uh, we've sold nearly 800 cars. We're running, you know, four to five auctions every night, and we keep hiring people. And the the, uh, the head office and mothership is is pretty pleased with us, David. So uh, so far, so good. I interviewed a colleague the other day who has a Series One Land Rover, and he had had it on the farm. Of his father bought it for the farm. I asked where it was. He said, "Oh, it's still on the farm." The patina and that might not be perfect. Would that represent something that uh, he might sell through your collecting cars? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, patina can add some value depending on you know what what a certain uh, buyer wants. Some people obviously love them just original, and the fact that it's got some patina and and still goes is is what they like. Other people might um, you know like that as an older vehicle and then might want to take it away and restore it and turn it back to new. It all depends. Uh, but yes, we, we, we sell a few Series 1 Landys, very popular, and uh, happy to talk to, you, to your pal.
<laughs> you sold uh, Lamborghini Aventador in Australia for seven hundred and forty-two thousand dollars, a two thousand and seventeen model. I noticed the European sales. There was a two thousand and fifteen Lamborghini Huracan Super Trofeo Evo, but it, it was only up to about one hundred eighty-four thousand dollars at that stage. Is that a difference in car, or is it a different in region? Do you think? Yeah, so totally, it's a it's a market thing. Australians, unfortunately, have always paid uh, through the nose for our prestige and performance cars and brands because of our luxury car tax rules and GST and everything else in between. So yes, generally speaking, you can you can pick something up in other regions like that uh, cheaper. But by the time you bring it in, you still have to pay the luxury car tax. You've got to get it complied, and on and on it goes. Um, you can. There obviously are some bargains to be had if you're um, wanting to to buy something like that and save a, save a few bucks. But this particular gentleman um, just wanted something here and to have it. And our other advantage, I, I think, it's probably worth pointing out, is that once the cars are over two hundred thousand dollars, our fee is capped. It's capped at a maximum of of eleven thousand dollars, whereas traditional auction houses will be uncapped. So. You know, this guy's only paying $11,000 com on a $750,000 car, whereas normally he'd be paying a hell of a lot more. These sales driven by passion for the vehicle or driven by investment or a bit of each, or are they the two distinct markets? Good question. I, I think there's um, there's multiple markets. I, I mean, you've got your, your daily driver guy, the guy that just, you know, needs a certain car and a certain brand to position his lifestyle, let's say. Um, you've got those guys. You've got the guys, the weekend warriors who like to have something interesting, which doesn't necessarily have to be expensive, just unique to take to, you know, the, the cars and coffee style events of which we run plenty, you know, something to show off, have a bit of a chat and just something to enjoy on a Sunday. You've got your, um, your tinkerers and your garage guys that, you know, will buy something and really enjoy the process of, of restoring it, you know, in the garage with their mates over a few beers. You've got your track, your track junkies, you know, that might want to buy something and just go as fast as they can every every couple of weeks. And then you're right, we've, we've also got, um, you know, the collectors and people who are looking for, for investment um, who might, you know, want to put it under a cover and stick it in the shed for 20 years and look at it. It's the whole, the whole beautiful gamut of the, of the collector and motor enthusiast market. Let me express my biases. You sold a 1970s Ferrari Dino 246 GT for $755,000. I emceed a car show well, some time ago, but when a guy was displaying one and he paid 150000 for it, for which he thought that was a lot, but of course the price has gone up. If I were to have a car like that, gee, I'd want to drive it. Yeah, me too. Now, you and I share uh, a D- obviously the same the same feeling about the Dino. It's one of my personal favourite cars too. And I remember a story of my dad saying that he got offered one in the mid seventies for uh, thirteen thousand Australian dollars. <laughs> he decided to to send us to to, to school and uh, you know buy a house. <laughs> well, buying a house was probably a good investment. Although I'm not making any judgment about your schooling. <laughs> I know the buyer of that particular vehicle and they're absolutely someone that's going to drive it and what a great car to drive. You know, the only Ferrari that has a um, doesn't have a Ferrari badge because it was, of course, an ode to Dino. Mm. Ferrari, who was Enzo's son that sadly passed away. 
had a V6, so originally it wasn't that cool. Uh, people, you know, thought, oh, Ferrari, it's only got a V6. It was like the baby Ferrari. But with those beautiful lines and, and that shape, it's be um, it's become a, a, a classic. And I can tell you that they're now there's a there was a rare purple one here in Australia that uh, fetched even more on the on the global market recently, which is again what what collectors like. You know, rare colours, interesting stories, all adds to the the value of a car. In Australia, the most outrageous prices are going for historic number plates. Uh, number plates in this specialty area for high performance or iconic cars, is that a significant point? What would Porsche go for in Australia? Uh, well, good question. We're certainly selling more and more plates and we're, uh, we're keen to attack the, uh, the heritage plate market. What we're traditionally seeing is it's kind of like property. It's kind of like cars. You know, they're not making any more... Uh, you know, Bondi Beach, uh, waterfront properties, uh, they're not making any more Dino Ferraris and they're not making any more, you know, number plates from New South Wales or Victoria with the number one or 10 on them. And your question about the Porsche plate, that's a pure custom plate. Something like that is hard to value. But yes, if it was a brand, you'd say someone would pay big money for it. But it's really the, the heritage plates rather than the custom plates that attract the big dough. Mate of mine has an old E-Type Jaguar and has XK number plate. It's not a perfect number after it, but it's still reflective of that. In these online auctions, it's great to watch as the, the time goes up, but sometimes some companies then just stop publicising the results very soon after the auction. Do you leave them up there for a while? Yes, we sure do. We, um, If you click onto our sold section on our homepage, you can see the cost and the sale of everything that we've ever sold. We do that because it's part of building trust with, uh, with the community. People want to know what the cars really trade for. And this is one of the, the great gray areas, you know, through the traditional classifieds. People might say, oh, it's going for such and such on that such and such website. You know, someone's asking 100 grand for a car. But, you know, you and I know that uh, what really happens is someone comes along and offers them 20 or 30 grand less or whatever the case may be, and they, they never get the advertised number. Whereas, um, you know, we like to make sure we're publishing all the real numbers uh, so people can understand where the market really is. Prices really boomed after the financial crisis, the global financial crisis of 2008. Have they gone up and down or and is that really a reflection of the state of the economy or other factors in the community? Yeah, so it's been a little bit of a roller coaster like other other markets. In general, we're seeing classic collectible and iconic cars as a as a market is is strong and certainly been strong over the over the past 10, 12 years. I think we saw a peak around COVID time where perhaps people had uh, more time to, to browse, more time to buy, maybe some money they didn't have on holidays to buy some cars and do some driving. Uh, so it's, it's possibly softened a little bit at the moment. But again, the truly collectible stuff like the, you know, the Ferraris and the Lamborghinis and let's call them, you know, the 70s and 80s Porsches just continue to be relatively bulletproof. They just, um, you know, they just keep keep going up. But yeah, the market's susceptible like anything else to trends. Interest rates at the moment are a bit high, so it's probably a, a slightly better buyer's market. But again, that's one of our advantages. You know, we, um, our auctions all run just for seven days. So you get a result pretty quickly. Uh, if you need to sell your car, everyone on the platform has to have a, a registered credit card to bid. So, um, you know, if you've got a good bid in there and it's close to your reserve price, you know, where people are, are pretty pleased with, uh, with the results that they're getting on our, on our platform. 
Well, my dreams are a Ferrari Dinos, but my first car was a Morris Minor. So I perhaps should put that in perspective. But uh, it's always lovely to look at, enjoy the cars that have made a significant impact, be they elegant, be they technology or many other things, and to watch how they're being sold and to some degrees how they're being used. So, Rich, I really appreciate your time and thank you very much for your information. Well, thank you for having me, David. Uh, your uh, listeners can come and check us out at collectingcars.com and uh, happy to chat to you anytime. Thanks for your, thanks for your time. And that's Richard Fowler, the head of Collecting Cars Australia. And he was talking about the ups and downs and the wonderful sense of involvement that people can have in looking at some classic vehicles buying and selling. You're listening to Overdrive. A big issue in the community at the moment is the disparity in wages where a CEO can earn squillions, particularly if he manages to push down the payment to workers. And that disparity is seen to be as a considerable problem to our community as a core value. Well, motorsport, and we went up to the V8 supercar race at Newcastle on the weekend. And it reminded me that motorsport is changing, it's becoming much more a commodity, and there are some good things there. But it means that there's a lot of money around for the top performers, but it's still supported totally by volunteers. In the list of in the back of the program, there's a list of volunteers. It ran to hundreds. And one who has volunteered on many occasions is our good friend, Evan Jones, who joins us now. Evan, the volunteers are at the very heart of motor racing, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. Currently, without them, you can't have an event. And them is is a lot of people. Depending on, on the size of the event, like I ran a super sprint last Sunday and found I had 30 officials. I was in something of a panic, but I was lucky I had 30 very good ones, so we were able to run it. The Grand Prix, in a few weeks' time, will have like six or 700. Of which you'll be one? At this stage, yes. You spend a lot of your own money to do that, don't you? You go down there, you look at your own accommodation. Yes. That's the other thing about it. People say, oh, you get in the event for nothing. Well, yeah, but we work our bums off while we're there. And it's hardly an opportunity to wander around and have a look where you want to go. You are very much positioned where you have to be. Correct. You can't have a beer during the day. And at the end of the day, do they recognise your efforts? Look, each day we are given a lunch, and we're obviously on OHS, we've got water all day, every day, and they give us something of a uniform, depending on who you are. Some have to supply their own. But, yeah, at the end of the event, there is a like a big barbecue slash dinner put on if you want to go to it. Yes. And once comment, well, a number of times commentated from the Bathurst races where a guy spent his whole day in the press area. That means he never got outside to look at the cars. Yep. There were a lot of screens around, but anything that you could see at home anyway. And he didn't get the chance to stop and look. He had to deal with a number of feisty people over time. At the end of the day, he got a sausage sandwich and a, a can of soft drink. And I thought that that didn't really uh, reflect that, his effort and the value of what he gave. I, I did one time was conscripted at the very last minute at a club meeting to be a flaggy at Oran Park. I did it appallingly badly. 
I would have thought it was obvious, but it was in the dark and I didn't know if people could see me and I, I it wasn't good. And we got bagged out by the commentator, probably justifiably in a way, but not as a way of which I learnt. And while you might be keen, you've also got to be taught and you've got to have a relationship with those people. Is that a fair comment? Yes, all of it's 100% correct. It's great to have people who are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but you can't put them out there until they've been trained in what it is they've got to do because some of the signals that they make do have a bearing on the safety of the competitors on the track because it has a bearing on their on their actions, which obviously has a bearing on the interaction between the fellow competitors. And they put themselves at risk at the Newcastle event. One car skewed badly, hit the temporary guardrail, which pushed it back and knocked one of the volunteers over. He was all right, as I understand it, but there is an element of risk. Particularly in the case of a, a temporary circuit, like a street circuit, they have temporary walls. They're actually designed to move in a controlled way. But that unfortunately means that yeah, I believe that the competitors are at a higher degree of compared to a permanent circuit where a lot of thought can be given to the placement and construction of uh, Marshall's points on a permanent circuit. I think that might have been a trade of Newcastle, but I would have liked to have known which trains they were getting off. It might have been a Maitland train rather than a, than a Sydney train. But at Sydney Motorsport Park, the vast majority still wear their colours. Uh, I was lucky enough to attend the, the official test day a few weeks ago. Everyone was wearing their colours there. And at the 12 hour, as I think we might, you might recall, about a third of the people were wearing the colours of a certain famous bike rider. So The doctor. The doctor, yeah. So it's unusual that people are turning up and not wearing some form of um, branding. There's a couple of very young uh, girls, obviously, the children of that, you know, we're, uh, young girls wearing fairy dresses. So I thought that was lovely. But maybe it is a, an aspect of Newcastle, but maybe it's something that might be there. Do you know what I noticed? The advertising on the cars is quite different than what it was 20 years ago. There's absolutely no advertising of something like VB Beer. You remember when Russell Ingall was about the enforcer? It was it was all much more blokey then. It's still probably a bit blokey now, but there were advertisements for tradies and work things in that regard. But there were also financial services. When I was following motor racing, the only financial service would have been, can I increase the limit on my credit card? There seemed to be a, a different feel to it, and of course, I was up there on as a a guest of a thrifty car rental, which is becoming much more part of an understanding of a mobility that is changing in time. They're actually um, naming right sponsor for the event, mm. which um, yeah, it, it's a big sign of the times. And you're right, the um, number of uh, alcohol providers as sponsors has definitely dropped down markedly in the last three or four years. As you say, there's financial people come up. There are solicitors now advertising on cars. There's a number of solicitors or legal people on different cars now. So mm. uh, a lot of earth movers. I think the, the one big alcohol is still is um, was on the uh, on, on the Grove cars. I won't name the, the thing, but the, they've got a major uh, co-sponsor, if you like, for um, their cars, which is an alcohol provider. But that's now more the exception rather than the norm. The other thing is that there's much more emphasis on 
putting very clear and concise and big advertising on the roof. I guess that's because we're getting far more aerial shots. Correct. Yeah, there's not much wasted space on a car. <laughs> the Newcastle circuit also has an element of uh, Monte Carlo about it because it's right by the part of it is right by the water, and so a number of very big yachts were parked there. Not quite as organised as it is in Monte Carlo, but yeah, it's, it's got a little bit of a feel that it makes motor racing a little bit more broader in its appeal. Yeah, not sure I've seen many 100,000-tonne bulk carriers come in and out of uh, Monte Carlo Harbour, but other than that, yes, you're right. Uh, I will say whoever organised the camera angles was clever. They did show Newcastle in its best light. Yes, which has lost a lot of its ore carriers and has turned to, uh, you know, along the water there is now more restaurants and lovely walks and so on. But as always, Evan, that's great, mate. Thanks very much. No worries. As a side note, I attended the supercar race at Newcastle as a guest of Thrifty Car Rentals, who are the naming sponsor for the event. One of their keen workers who helped look after guests was very keen to say hello because his father is a regular listener to the Overdrive program. So it's a call out to Greg, who has an interest and a love for cars and has listened to the program for many years we might catch up with Greg to get an understanding of his experience. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Rich Fowler, Evan Jones and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.